Well, I, uh, for one, am so happy to be here with you guys. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to you all. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if, uh, if you're new with us or, or visiting with us today, we're so happy that you're here. Welcome, welcome. Um, every other month or so, we actually put on something called a newcomer lunch as well. Um, and that just takes place right after the service. And uh, we, we, we kind of ask for everybody who's new and wants to hear a little bit of in, more info about the church, how we started, what we're up to, what we look like in the city, uh, ask que any questions you might have about the church. We do that uh, every couple of months in what's called the Newcomer Lunch, and the next one is next Sunday. And so if you're newer with us and, and would love to just get some more info about the church, next Sunday is, is your Sunday, really, you know? And so it'll be a great lunch. It's, it's a really fun time where uh, Pastor Dave and myself, we both just uh, spent about an hour, hour and a half after the service just enjoying a meal together and talking about Sedaris and, and how it started and what we're up to and all that jazz. So that's that's next week. If, if you're new and that interests you, get it on your calendar. Make sure to make it there. Um, so yeah, uh, if you brought your Bible today, we're going to enter into our time of teaching now, and we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. So pull it on out, and if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have some underneath the row in front of you. You can grab one of those and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4 is where we're going to be working from this morning. Um, it's been a really fun time going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's our typical uh, MO here at Sedaris, so to walk through a book of the Bible at a time. And uh, we are in 1 Corinthians right now, which is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote in the first century to a church that he had started in Corinth. And uh, to get us started today, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read our passage, then we're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump on into it, all right? So uh, 1 Corinthians 4, when you get there, look for the small number 18. The small number 18 is where we're going to be reading from. All right. Paul writes, now some, uh, now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and the spirit? of gentleness. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we, we come to your word today, and Lord, we, we, we just praise you for the fact that you have not uh, sent us into this world without, uh, without help, without a guide in the form of your scriptures, Lord. And so God, we, we just thank you for just the revelation of scripture that you have used Paul to pen your words here in this letter, God, and that, that your church throughout uh, 2,000 years of history has leaned into it, asking how your spirit might apply it to our lives. And so as we do that task this morning, God, we, we pray that, that you would let your word speak to us clearly today, Lord. God, we, we pray that, that you would uh, take our hearts, that you would make them soft to hear what your word has to say, that, that, that you would uh, take our, our minds and our ears and make them open to what you might have to say to us through your scriptures, God. And God, right now, just, we, we just know that you provided all of this for us, for our good, for our good here in this world, and, and so that we might be satisfied in life and thrive here on this earth as we look forward to your kingdom that's gonna break into it and be eternal and everlasting. And so God, I just pray that, that you would show us and communicate to us what we need to hear from you today. We thank you for, for this time to gather together and that you promise your spirit's with us. And we look for you to powerfully show up in our midst. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and, and, and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Um, 
Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Today, we find ourselves at the end of chapter four in 1 Corinthians. Um, And this is a sermon series that we started at the beginning of of the year. And over the course of these past 11 or or 12 weeks, we've learned a bunch about this church in Corinth that Paul uh, started, but was separated from hearing rumors about. And so he, he heard some concerning reports. And so he writes this letter to kind of address those concerns Uh, that that he had heard, and we learned last week that it's likely that one of his disciples named Timothy showed up with this letter and brought this letter to the church, and Timothy was supposed to uh, not just deliver this letter, but help them learn how to uh, follow it, how to put these teachings that Paul is giving to the Corinthian church into practice. And and this week we come to these um, four verses at the end of chapter four, which are really functioning as a hinge verse of sorts, like a hinge section. Paul does this all the time. Like if you read Paul, it's really difficult to know when he's done talking about one subject and he's gonna start talking about a new subject. Um, in fact, like, it, it's, sometimes it's helpful to get a Bible that doesn't have these paragraph breaks and these uh, titles for the paragraphs in. That, that some Bibles just throw those out because Paul didn't have those. He didn't have paragraph breaks. He actually didn't even have spaces between words. They just wrote in all caps, just right in a row. Uh, papyrus was rare back then, and so you tried you try to save as much of it as you could. So there's no breaks in, in Paul's original letters. And it's really difficult to find out when he moves from one subject to the next. And so this is kind of like a hinge section, which is connecting um, everything he's talked up to at this point, this kind of concerns of what was going on in the Corinthian church that we've labored to, to talk about for the past couple of months. And he's getting us into, it's getting his reader set up for the next section, for the next section. Um, and so um, we're in this hinge section, and, and we've called this sermon today Orientation Day. Orientation Day, because that's kind of what Paul is, is up to right here. He's orienting his reader in this hinge section to the great Christian hope, to the great Christian hope, the great Christian plan, and how it all works. Um, uh, orientation days are the days all of us are familiar with, where institutions typically will take their newest members and they'll orient them. They'll, they'll, they'll tell them exactly everything the organization is up to and the institution is up to, right? They'll, they'll, um, they'll say, this is what we're hoping to do in the world. This is how we're going to try to see it happen. And, and this is what, um, what we expect from you in this. And, and this is how you can expect to be supported over the course of your time here. So all of us if you started a new job, there's a day or a week where, where they'll spend just orienting you to this is who we are, this is what we do, this is how we make it happen, this is what you're going to do, this is how, who's here to support you and how they're going to support you in all of this. This is what Paul is doing here. I'm inviting all of us to kind of conceive, it's kind of a silly example, but to, to begin to conceive of, of Paul doing something similar in this passage today, he's, he's providing vision and mission and alignment for the Corinthian church as to what the church is even about, what, what it's supposed to do in the world, and then he's making clear uh, what, how they're supposed to participate in that and the support that they can expect from him in it. This is what he's doing for them in, in this passage. Um, and the natural question is, well, how is engaging their orientation, how is that helpful for us? Like, our organizations are separated by 2,000 years, right? Like, it's very different, uh, church, first century Corinth, and church in, in 21st century Seattle. This is very different, but it's still the same organization. It's still the same, same mission, same purpose, same guiding principles, same goals, same roles. It's the oldest institution on the face of the earth right now. It's pretty, pretty phenomenal things, and, and, and we seem to have the same hang-ups, being the church now, 
that they had then, which tells us that human beings, although we'd love to believe the opposite, really haven't changed that much. Same, same hang-ups. And, and, and so Paul's orienting the, orienting the Corinthians again because he's about to deal with some of their fairly serious shortcomings that had been taking place in the church. And, and, and so before he goes there, he reminds them what God is hoping to accomplish through them, their part in it, how they can expect to be supported in it so that when he kind of steps in to support them, they're ready for it. And there's no really easy way to say it, but in the next two chapters, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, um, Paul's going to have a hard conversation with this church. He's going to have a hard conversation with them that's coming in, in, in a few weeks. We're, we're going to start that, to unpack that part of the conversation with them. And he's going to rebuke them. Rebuke. We cringe at that word, don't we? It, it makes us cringe. Why? Well, because we're all human, and we don't really think it's one person's place necessarily to rebuke someone else's or, or to, to rebuke someone else. How, how unkind, we'll say. How unkind is that? Um, I'll, I'll never forget um, a pastoral counseling meeting I had with someone who I, I dearly love, you know, and, and, and we're, he was kind of straying, um, and I hadn't seen him in a long time. I said, let's get together, let's talk about this, and we were talking about what was going on, and he looked at me and he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you think that God calls people to live their life in certain ways in this world, and I think that God calls people to live their life in certain ways in this world, and let's just leave it at that. And I looked at him, and I said, I, I refuse to leave it at that. I don't know what came over me. I got, this is, I'm not usually this forceful in pastoral conversations. I said, I refuse to leave it at that. And he kind of braced, and he's like, oh, no, he's going to really try to push his view on me. And I did the opposite. I said, if you have something that you think God has for me for how to live my life, I want to know that. That's incredible. The God of the universe has an opinion on how to live my life. I, I want to know that. I covet that information. If you have that insight, that perspective, I want to know that. It's one of the most important questions in life. And over the course of the conversation, it was clear that he didn't feel the same way, unfortunately. And, and I, I mourn that. I, I miss him. This is a brother. I loved him dearly. I loved his energy, his persona. He was funny and smart and kind. So I, I, I mourn that. I, I mourn that. But... This thinking is, is just prevalent in our society. It, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And, and what I did with, with him is what I think Paul is really hoping all Christians everywhere can do, which is open themselves to the possibility of rebuke in their lives, to open ourselves to the possibility of rebuke. And, and our, our hesitancy to do it is nothing new. This, this made them cringe 2,000 years ago without a doubt. It's, it's present in many, 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 many churches since. It's, it's, it's present today. And, and I can hear and I can understand the cry of Paul in these verses here in, in 1 Corinthians 4. What, what, what he's saying is, is if, if, if mature Christians, if, if mature spiritual parents, remember Dave talked about kind of spiritual maturity um, about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, where you kind of have this, this progression of someone who's spiritually unborn to being a spiritual, a newborn, to, to child, to young adult, to, to parent. But, but, but what, what Paul's saying is if spiritual Parents don't come alongside uh, those uh, that are of, of, of lower maturity in the church and rebuke them and, and help them live a life in accordance with how the God of the universe hopes they live it in order to, to see his kingdom come in the world. We're going to get there in a sec. Um, if they don't do that, who will? Who's going to do that? No one will. No one will. So, so in, in this passage... Uh, Paul's stepping up to the plate, I guess you could say, if you want to get into a baseball metaphor. He's stepping up to the plate. He's putting on his gloves, 
and, and he's, he's, he's about to take some swings. He, he's about to introduce some things that they need to consider so that they might grow. Um, in verse 20, he says this, for the kingdom of God is, is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in a spirit of love and gentleness is, is what he says. This is Christian orientation. And, and as you read through these verses, there's three main subjects that are in, intertwined with one another um, in here, and, and they go like this. Um, the kingdom of God, power, and love. The kingdom of God, power, and love. The, the, the kingdom of God is, is, he's telling them what the Christian project they're involved in. He's orienting them back to like, this is what Christianity's about, the kingdom of God. And, and this is how you can know if you're on track, if you see it's power. And, and, and this is how you can expect to be supported, love. So all, all three of these are intertwined in these short four verses here, um, and uh, we're just going to take one subject at a time and, and get clear on them so that we can know how we can lean into this passage and apply it to, to our lives, to our walk with God, and hopefully be encouraged to take courageous, bold steps of growth in our life. Um, so let, let's start with, with uh, the, the great Christian hope. What's coming to this world? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We've handled a lot of big subjects in this letter already. Uh, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the mind of God. Like in f- four short chapters, we've like, we've, this is some heavy, deep, heavy theological, deep hitting stuff here that's been going on. And, and now Paul drops another huge concept on us in the kingdom of God. Only this time, unlike these other ones, he just c- clearly expects you to know what he's talking about. <laughs> there, there's no further definition of the kingdom of God here. He's just like, boom, kingdom of God. And he, and he, just, he, he expects the Corinthians to know what he's talking about, and so he had likely talked about it a lot with them. And one way that we can try to understand what Paul's talking about here is by looking at all the, way that he, the ways that he uses the term throughout his other letters. He only uses it a handful of times. And that way, honestly, I mean, there's tons of scholars that have written tons on it, but it just all feels kind of speculative to, uh, speculative to me. So I was like, I'm pretty sure that Paul's just leaning on the guy who talked about the kingdom of God more than anybody who went from town to town to town talking about the kingdom of God, who, who told all these crazy metaphorical stories called parables about the kingdom of God. You guys know who I'm talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This was Jesus' jam. He loved talking about the, the, the kingdom of God. When he, uh, when he was in his ministry, Jesus' ministry, you can largely conceive of, of this, of going from town, like small villages in northern Israel, from town to town to town to town. And he'd deliver a stump speech, and then he'd follow up on what that stump speech would do to the people in that town, how they wanted to respond to it. So he'd go from town to town to town, delivering a, a stump speech that's preserved for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that goes like this. Um, he'd say, the, kingdom of, or the, the time has come, we're at a unique point in history, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's close. Repent and believe the good news. That, 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 so that was like, that's Mark's encapsulation of Jesus' stump speech that he told over and over and over all around. And um, that's what he did. And, and this good news to his original hearers, it would have been um, Jesus really communicating, you know what, the, the kingdom's coming and the, repent and believe the good news. And, and so kind of an inherent in this good news is you can be a part of this kingdom. You can be a part of it, and throughout his ministry, he said, like, he talked about how if you listen to my teaching and to my commands, you can be part of the kingdom of God. And then in his death and in his resurrection, it became clear how that would actually be made possible. So you could say the means of the kingdom of God entering into the world became possible, where God takes that which is dead and raises it to life again powerfully. 
Uh, and so that's what Jesus was all about, just communicating about the kingdom of God. But when the Jews heard this kingdom of God language, um, before they died, they thought that Jesus was talking about restarting the, the theocratic nation of Israel. Okay, like, like they had in the past with, with, Saul, with King Saul and David and Solomon. And so they were continually asking him questions like this, like, so how's this kingdom going to work? And, and Jesus was so evasive of answering that question, he'd talk about it in parables. Uh, he says, I'm not quite ready to give you the full level of, of how I envision my kingdom coming to earth partially because he wanted to stay alive for three years because he knew that he, he refuted their version of the kingdom of God and, and adapted it to what he was really going to be doing through the Holy Spirit, that they'd kill him right away. And so he was very evasive with it, but he was so evasive and, and kind of not very direct in talking about the kingdom of God that even after he died, rose again, hung out with his, um, uh, his disciples, it says around 500 people saw him um, before he ascended back to the Father. Before he ascended to the Father, they asked him this question, Lord, are you at this time going to reinstate the kingdom to Israel? And you can almost see Jesus just do the face plant, or the, 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 the face palm. You know, like, no, gosh, you're still asking me this question. And, and his response goes like this. He says, um, um, he said, it's not up for you to know that at this time, but I will send you the Spirit. Now, now, this mention of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with this kingdom of God, combined with the fact that Jesus also told them, um, many of you are going to be alive, by, and you're going to see my kingdom come in full. Now, all of them are dead, and the theocratic nation state of Israel didn't get reinstated until 1950, so he obviously wasn't talking about that. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Well, we can learn from this that the kingdom of God is connected to the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of God in some way. So what's the best way to understand it? Um, probably my favorite place where I feel like the kingdom of God is very clearly defined for us is actually in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples ask him how to pray, and he says, when you pray, you should go like this. You should, you should, uh, you should pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he uses something called Hebrew parallelism, where you have these two lines where the second one further defines and makes clear the, uh, the, the, the first line. And so he says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is where his will is done, where God's will is being done. Now, 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 if that's the case, then his kingdom isn't just anywhere um, that the Holy Spirit is present or where God is present in the world. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the kingdom of God. Oh, that's where, wherever God reigns. Uh, yes, it's wherever God's presence, but also where he reigns means wherever his will is currently being done, wherever it's being done. So the subtext here is you can have the presence of the Holy Spirit but not be leaning into what he's calling you to do, or yielding to him, or, or listening to him, or obeying him. And therefore, you can be missing out on the kingdom of God in your life and its benefits. Great health care, by the way, the kingdom of God. Great health care. It's coming. So the kingdom of God is more than his presence. It's his presence yielded to, listened to, obeyed. Um, if you were here with us a few years ago, we worked through another one of the letters of Paul, the, his letter to the Colossians. And, and there we talked about it like this. He, um, in Colossians, he kind of sets up the earth as, uh, he talks about this in the book of Colossians, kind of the big idea of the Colossians is the earth is kind of this, this dark and fallen place. And what God is up to through Christ is carving out little outposts where, where Jesus' will, where God's will is being perfectly done through the Holy Spirit. And so he's carving out all these in the created order through us. 
That's the kingdom of God breaking into the world. This is the extent of the mission that Christians are on. This is everything Paul has in mind when he says the kingdom of God here. This is his test. This is what what God is hoping to do through churches, create little outposts of his kingdom in the world. Now, that's not done yet, and and how well that goes um, in part depends upon how much we participate with the Holy Spirit in God's activity in in this way. And, And Jesus will eventually come and finish it all, but its progress seems to be tied to our activities as well partnering with God and his mission to reveal his love to the world. That's the kingdom of God. Now, so the question becomes then, how will we know when that's happening? How will we, what are we to look for in that? Well, that's our our next piece, power, power. The evidence of power is what Paul says. He says it right here, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power, power. Now, this is a little bit ambiguous, right? What kind of power is he talking about? In a few verses down here, what he's going to do is he's going to be talking about how he says, you guys, I'm going to be with you, united in the power of the Spirit to excommunicate some folks who were in a sexually inappropriate relationship. Is that the kind of power he's talking about? In in, uh, Romans chapter 15, he talks about God's miraculous powers of signs and miracles and casting out demons and, and, and things like this. Is that the kind of power that he's talking about? In, in Colossians chapter 1, he, he uses the, the term power to refer to God powerfully working a, a, a Christian's endurance in life and their joy and their satisfaction. Is that the kind of power that he's talking about? What does he actually have in mind when he says the word power here? Well, one thing's for certain. He makes clear what he doesn't think it is, and that's talk. He, he says it's not a matter of talk, but a matter, a matter of power. Or you could say talk only, because Paul loved to talk. Let's, let's get one thing straight. This guy loved to talk. He loved to talk. He, he was always preaching and teaching and talking and questioning and answering about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God all the time. This is what his life revolved, uh, like completely, completely revolved around. One night before he was going to leave on a journey, uh, he was leaving the next morning to go on a journey, and so he stayed up all night talking to a church about the mysteries of God, and people were starting to fall asleep. It, it's really funny when you read it in Luke. Luke kind of has this subtext that you read it, and he, you're like, Luke, is, Luke knew Paul, and he's kind of saying, and Paul was talking again, you know, and people are falling asleep here and there. One person falls asleep that's on a windowsill, falls out of the windowsill, a couple stories up, dies. So Paul literally loved talking so much that he talked someone to death. He talked someone to death, okay? He he went down and he raised him back to life again, so he healed him, so it's okay, right? Um, But he literally talked someone to death. So he's not saying talking is bad here. He's not saying stop talking about Jesus, stop teaching, stop preaching. He told Timothy to preach the gospel in season and out of season. Paul would preach and teach the gospel until he'd be arrested for preaching and teaching the gospel and then killed for preaching and teaching the gospel. So he loved talking about this. So what does he mean? Well, he's, he's confronting some so-called super apostles here. We, we've talked about this, and, and he's, he mentions them directly in 2 Corinthians. That they, these were, these were, were, were men who were so incredibly persuasive and, and trained in the rhetorical art of, of giving speeches and, and sermons, and, and they had been, apparently become so incredibly disruptive that the people were valuing these guys and their teaching over the gospel of Jesus himself. We've talked about all that already. Um, they were recognized because they had powerful rhetoric. And, and people thought that they appeared to be more powerful preachers than Paul. 
And, and, and part of Paul's response here, as, as we've already seen, is he's like, I'm not going to compete in that way. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play like rhetorical word games. How silly is that? How silly is that? I don't want you leave, like, to leave me like teaching you impressed with the preacher. I want to leave, you to leave having met with the person of Jesus Christ. That's really what I'm about here. Not self-glorification, but Jesus' glorification. A, a glorification of Christ that leads you to trust him to change your life. And that's power. And he's confident. You, you, you read this. In, kind of in, in the tone of this letter, of this section here, he's confident that this power is no longer at play in Corinth, right? Don't you get that sense as, as you read it? That's because it's a, it's a great translation of the Greek here. Paul is being sarcastic here. He says, when I come, I'm not going to find out the, the talk, but the power. Because the, the rumors that I'm hearing of what's going on in your midst is that the gospel that's supposed to change lives is no longer changing lives. Life change has left your church when I come, I'm going to see what's really being produced here. The Corinthians and, and their struggles are, are proof that the power has left their church, which is haunting. He says, look at you, you divided, you sexually immoral, you greedy, you power-obsessed people. I can already tell these guys aren't bringing the kingdom of God into your midst because your power is gone. It's clear up to this point and it's in his other letters that... Um, when Paul shows up, he actually doesn't dominate the room with his personality. Like, you think he might, reading these letters. We kind of have a picture of Paul, like, oh man, when this guy shows up, like, stuff happens. But he actually doesn't. It seems that he shows up, and he's, uh, he, says, he shows up with this spirit of gentleness that he talks about at the end of, his, at the end of these verses, often. That, that that's actually his natural disposition, or you could say his spiritually informed and empowered disposition. I like to think that Paul, in a previous life, before he met Christ, was very gung-ho, maybe enough to arrest Christians and murder them. But the Spirit changed him, and he's gentle, and he's gentle. He doesn't have a powerful persona, but what's the most powerful evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it not conversion? Paul led these men and women to Christ. What's the second most powerful evidence of the gospel? Is it not that the, the Holy Spirit takes immoral, greedy, sexually promiscuous, resentful, envious sloths, and turns them into upright, sacrificial citizens of a new kingdom that actually give of themselves to one another? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 will say, that's what some of you were, but you experienced the power of, of, of God in your life. This is the power of the kingdom of God. It radically converts sinners and then changes them. Changes them. Anyone can talk about God, but is it creating an encounter with God? which is leading to life change, where they're considering following him, where they're actually considering and, 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 and contemplating how they might grow in holiness. That's strange. That's powerful. Only God can do that. Only God can do that in, in someone's life. And, and so what exactly are we looking for to identify God's power in our lives? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The, the fruits of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so this is how you can always test in your life to see and, and ask, is God's power working in my soul and in my life? Am I partnering with the Holy Spirit and yielding to him so that his fruits are being present and made manifest in my life? It's, it's an honest question that we should be periodically asking of ourselves. Are the fruits of the Spirit increasing? Or have I plateaued? Have I regressed? 
And to answer that question, you usually need brothers and sisters in Christ. You usually need brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of us are really hard on ourselves and will always say no. That's me. (laughs) Always say no. Nope. It's not there. But we need brothers and sisters to, to say, no, don't worry. God's growing. God's, the Spirit's doing things through you. I see the fruit in your life. Other of us, we think we're, we, we just automatically assume that we're great. Oh yeah, I'm set, totally. If you knew me before as a Christian, I'm, sweat, I'm way different now. But the question is, are you growing in it? Are you progressing in it? And that's what you can ask your Christian brothers and sisters to help you with. No one's gonna be perfect in it, you know? Oh, Jesus said our constant aim is perfection but we'll continually fall short of it. And so we have this continual opportunity to lean into the gospel of of Christ where we get to experience and and lean on God's mercy and his forgiveness and then experience the the power of him working his spirit through us to bring us fruit in life. That's, That's death and resurrection. That's encountering the gospel every day of your life. That's what it's about. So that that's the power of the kingdom of God Paul's talking about here. Is it in your life? If so, praise God. If not, you need some support. You need some help, which is to say, you need someone to love you. You need someone to love you. But it, it might look a little bit different than you think it will because the world has redefined love and perhaps darkened your vision of what love really is. We just have a faint, faint glimpse of what it really is. Um, Paul actually has love in mind from, from the very beginning of this passage. Uh, you, you might be like, uh, he's just kind of talking about love at the very end. How can we say this is intertwined? He actually has at the very beginning of this passage when he, he uses this word arrogant. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you because, and uh, this is, uh, it's in this letter that Paul says this very famous verse in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, knowledge, that's speech and talk, puffs up, but love builds up. And, and this word um, um, puffs up in, in 8 verse 1, it's actually the same word here used here to talk about arrogant people. The ones who are puffed up, you could translate that. It's, it's the very same Greek verb that's used. It's, and it's the active sense in, in chapter 8, and here it's, it's the, the, the verbal noun form of it that says, to those who are puffed up. You see, these, these two are very, very closely linked to one another. Um, and here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. These teachers actually don't love you. They actually don't love you. They love themselves. They love themselves. So they have these fancy things, these fancy rhetorical sermons so that they can get more and more followers. And, and part, of, part of how they're going to amass followers is not by challenging you, apparently. They're not going to challenge you to obey what the, the word of God says because they love themselves too much to do that. And they don't love you. They don't love you. They're, pri- they're prioritizing their vanity over your well-being. This is Paul's big issue with these teachers. They just want a following, so they're not going to challenge you in any real way. They want a following. They don't love you. They're just puffed up. They're arrogant. We don't typically think of arrogance like this. We, we typically think of arrogance as like a, a domineering personality that's just overbearing. But Paul calls them arrogant. You can do it by sounding great, not actually challenging people. Arrogant, leaning into vanity over challenge. It's a great way to get a following, don't get me wrong. It was working really well for them until Timothy shows up with his letter. But not me, Paul says. He says, I I love you. I love you too much to do that. I'm open to challenging you because of my love for you because love builds 
up. If you want the kingdom of God to produce life-changing power in your life, you need to be in an environment where people love you enough to disagree with you, where people love you enough to have a hard conversation with you, where people love you enough to even rebuke you. Because here's what's insidious about the world. Um, it, confident, it confidently and arrogantly proclaims the opposite. Western society says it's unloving to challenge somebody's lifestyle, right? This is the air that we, we breathe, and so no wonder that we can often fall into this line of thinking here. Now, to be clear, Paul is calling Christians to help one another. He's not calling Christians to lovingly rebuke the added lifestyles of those who are outside the church. Okay, so let's just be very clear about this. This stays within the church, within those who are, are saying and hoping that, that the word of God can be applied to their souls so they can experience the power of the kingdom of God in their lives. It's for those people, not outside the church. But this discipline is, and we're talking about discipline here, is, is a theme that's rife throughout all of the scriptures. I'm not going to give you a full tour, but we're just going to go to Psalm 23, which is um, historically, probably, the passage of scripture that has comforted the church of God more than any other passage in history. And so we're, we're going to go there. Uh, we're going to throw it on the screen for you. We're going to look at the first couple of verses. Um, David used to be a shepherd himself. And um, so he's actually leaning into a shepherding metaphor to talk about his relationship with God. Psalm 23, verse 1 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. They comfort me. This is, he's historically the, the, the passage of scripture that, that the people of God have probably found the most comfort in. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, you know what, like, life was going crazy. It was really difficult. I was suffering so much. I couldn't even read my Bible anymore. All I could do was, was read this psalm and say this psalm. That's all I could do in life is Psalm 23. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't pray. I couldn't do it. Just Psalm 23. It's the most comforting portion of scripture, but it's a, it, it starts off with God's discipline. You make me lie down. You lead me in righteousness. Your rod and your staff. Paul references a rod here. These are instruments used not just to, to ward off predators, but to, to guide and, you know, give the sheep a little bump to keep them on the, those paths of righteousness. This is what David has in mind here, the discipline of the Lord to keep his people on track and obeying his word. To keep them from wandering off. Sheep are so dumb they'd fall off cliffs, I hear. Okay? Not an agrarian society, but they're so dumb they could fall off a cliff and die. These were instruments used to keep the sheep alive and to keep them lying down in green pastures to nourish themselves so their souls could be full and satisfied. And, and, and if this is true of God's character, if he does this, we should expect to find it in the person of Jesus Christ. Whenever you come to a conclusion about God's character in the Old Testament, your next question should be, okay, where do I see this in the person of Christ? And it sure does. It plays out. It plays out. Probably the most popular example, or at least the most jarring, is when Jesus, um, he doesn't have a rod or a staff, but he fashions a whip, and he goes around the temple setting the week before they put him on the cross, saying, do not turn my father's house into a marketplace. Just, and Mark really uses a really interesting phrase when he talks about it. He says that Jesus would not let anybody carry goods through the temple. So it's not like Jesus just got mad and overturned some tables and, and did that for a little bit. 
He, he policed that place for a prolonged period of time, whip in hand, saying no one can carry goods through the temple. Whew. Now, you might say, well, that's not me. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't conflate consumerism. You know, that's what was happening. They were charging these exorbitant prices to people who were coming in from out of town. Uh, they knew they had to sacrifice stuff, so they'd bring stuff, they'd sell it to them, these huge prices, and that's what Jesus was like, you guys are just getting rich off of temple worship? This is ridiculous. He said, oh, I don't conflate consumerism with worship. I don't, I'm not here trying to sell people stuff that they need in order to find God. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> but this isn't the only place that happens. Turn to Matthew 23. Have you, the, Jesus lays a scathing rant on the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law who, who technically ticked every box of obedience with Christ. Every box! But Jesus accuses them of neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He calls them blind three times. My Bible puts an exclamation point at the end of it. Hypocrites twice. Snakes twice. He says they're fit for hell. Rebuke. Now, you, you might say, exactly. Really, Jesus really only took issue with, like, the super hyper-religious people, but everybody else, he was cool with. Like, like, like he was just cool with every, everybody else. Well, there's, there, there's a time when Jesus' disciples keep children from him. And Mark, again, Mark. Mark has great language. What's great about Mark versus the other Gospels, I'll just, I wasn't planning on doing it, but I'll make this quick, is his Greek is much more like, see Jesus jump, see Jesus run, see Jesus heal, see Jesus cast out demons, you know? Like, it's really direct and forceful. And, and here he says, see Jesus indignant with his disciples. Just pissed off, angry. He rebukes them. He says, let the children come to me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You might say, oh, I'd never keep anybody away from Jesus. I'd never keep people from visiting Jesus, but, but then there's Peter. When Jesus lays out the plan for what's coming next in the final week of his life, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, Lord, this, this could never happen. And Jesus says, get away from me, Satan, for you are not thinking about God's concerns, but, humans deserve, but, but human concerns. And no one passes that test. All of us are Peter. You know how much you obsess over human concerns, over God concerns. You do. You do. You know. I know. And if Jesus were to show up, he would have a conversation with all of us. First, he'd definitely rejoice to be in, in the presence of a fellow brother and sister. He'd love that, but he'd also have some rebukes for us. You don't have in mind the things of God, just the things of human here. Come on, what are you doing? You see, all of us, no one passes that test. Jesus would rebuke each and every one of us in certain areas of our lives. And if that's true, if Jesus looks at us and says, you too are a hindrance to me and my work in the world. If, if that's true, then, then those are conversations that he wants to have with us. And he wants to, to have them with us through the person and the work of, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if and, if and when we shut those down, we say, I'm not going to have that conversation with the Spirit. We quench the Spirit in that way, is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. That's what he calls that. He will use fellow Christian brothers and sisters, mature Christian parents, to do that, to enter that rebuke in, to, 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 to enter that loving rebuke in and, and discipline. That's what he will do. Why is that? Because the quickest way to take the wind out of the sails of a church is to take challenge out of it. It's to give in to the cultural message that vilifies challenge. Say, nah, that's not important. We're really here, focused here on, on, on being kind to people. That's how we've redefined love. Love is to be kind. That's the quickest way 
to take the wind out of the sails of a church. And that's not a guess. That's not a guess. Church history tells us that. Show me a church that has decided to get rid of challenge, and I'll show you a church that in a couple decades is no longer reaching the next generation. I guarantee you. There is a graveyard of churches out there. Some of them are half in the grave. Because that's when we forfeit our power. That's when the, the, the power of the kingdom of God is forfeited. The gospel and the cross, the gospel of the cross and the resurrection says, come and die. Jesus says, all who want to find their life will have to lose it for my sake. That's what he says. And he's not talking about their future death one day. He's talking about now and this life, taking all their human concerns and dying to those wants and those desires, which takes challenge, does it not? It's hard. I'm right there with you. This is not an easy thing. It's hard. It's challenge, but it's good. And it's joyful. Because here's the thing about something that's puffed up, about something that it's, that's inflated. It can't last. It won't stay inflated forever. In, in my house, whenever we bring a balloon into the house, we have an orientation. I look deep into my daughter's eyes, and I say, all balloons die. <laughs> in the hopes that we can, uh, like, get around a temper tantrum that's going to happen. When in the, in the, inevitably, it will. It will pop, or if it's one of those mylar ones, it'll slowly, slowly fade until it's on the ground and annoys me, and then I'll kill it, you know, but all balloons die. Now, Paul has in mind someone's breath, lungs being inflated. You can only do it for so long. Eventually, the chest collapses, and it has to take another breath all puffed up, inflated arrogance, is eventually shown for what it really is. And it dies because it's absent the power of the kingdom. It's, it's absent substance. It's absent love that builds up. It has no material in it, just air. It's absent the power of the kingdom of God. May it, it never be so here at Sedaris. May God grant us the love and the courage and the, the trust among one another that, that we need in order not to fear rebuke, but covet it, to desire it. That's something only God can do, am I right? To be open to the possibility that our brothers and sisters in Christ might speak into our life challenge. This is, it's such a good but powerful disposition that, that we're fundamentally a, a opposed to. It's against all of our inclinations of what we've grown up with. It, it, it's against what our natural hearts want to experience. What, what, what our, uh, it's so hard, I get it. Only God can create it within us. And so may we look to him and ask him to do it. We're completely dependent on him to give us new hearts, soft hearts, not hearts of stone, soft hearts is what Ezekiel says. Hearts of flesh within our chest that we might be open to discipline and challenge from him and one another. So the power of the kingdom of God might be manifest in us through his spirit and truly be something that God uses to glorify himself in the world.